0: Right out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of St. Andrews. Today's episode is a science episode.
1: Oh, I love science.
0: Malaria is one of the most deadly diseases in the contemporary world. It kills almost half a million people every year and can be transmitted into humans by a single mosquito bite. In today's episode, I sit down with the immunologist, Dr. Vibke Narendorf. We discuss the immune system and the nature of malaria. We also talk about possible cures to malaria and the discovery of gin and tonic. Today's episode also has the ever-popular popcorn round. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's Vipke Narendorf talking about malaria. Enjoy. So, Vipke, you are an expert in immunology, and you've been working on creating a new vaccine against malaria. So I want to get to malaria in a minute, but first I want to ask a more basic question. What exactly does an immunologist study?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, So immunologists um, study the immune system, which is the really complex network of white blood cells and all the chemicals and proteins that they make um, in order to protect our bodies from pathogens Mm -hmm. when we get infected. And I'm particularly interested in the human immune system, which is actually relatively complex because it's made up of two separate systems. Oh, okay. So there is something which is called the innate immune system, which is evolutionary, really old. So even plants have it or quite basic animals like sponges. And it's basically a hardwired security guard kind of uh, system. So you have these cells which patrol your body and everything which looks foreign to them or possibly like an intruder, they will raise an alarm. They will just start throwing out all these chemicals and telling their friends like, oh my God, I found this thing. Mm -hmm. It looks bad. And their friends come in and they will just destroy the intruder. That's all they do. They don't do anything sophisticated. So if it's a bacterium, they will just eat it and digest it. If it's a virus, uh, they will kill the cell the virus is in okay and every time you get infected they will do the same thing they don't learn anything they always have this hardwired response and it works really well Um, for a lot of animals that's all they have but for vertebrates like us so Mm -hmm. animals with a backbone um, they have a second system which is called the adaptive system and this actually gets activated by the innate system. So the innate system is like, okay, I found something, I'm going to show it to you and maybe you can do something more sophisticated than just eat it. And then the adaptive system can try slightly different things. Like, oh, maybe if I change the response to be a little bit more acidic or a little bit more like this, it will help to combat this particular virus or bacterium better and once it finds a really good way it can actually remember that oh that's handy and that's the really great thing about the adaptive system that you get memory cells which can live for years and even decades and can protect you from an infection for all this time because it knows the best response to make and this is basically the basis of all vaccines Mm. right because you get shown with a vaccine an attenuated version of, say, a measles virus. And um, your innate immune system will look at it and be like, oh, looks foreign, and then tell the adaptive system about it. And the adaptive system will start to make a really powerful response against it and commit it to memory. Mm -hmm. So when you get infected for real it knows exactly what to do. So you won't even know that you had the virus because your immune system is so efficient of getting rid of it.
0: Okay, so I want to make sure I'm following along. So you said I've got these two systems in me. Like I've got this innate system and an adaptive system. Mm -hmm. And so the innate system is just kind of eat it, destroy it, you know, that's about it. It's just got that one strategy for getting rid of anything that infects my body. But my adaptive system, it has lots of different things it can do. And it also remembers how it 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 got rid of the virus previously so that's in like you said that's how if i've got like some vaccines my body can remember this for a very long time
1: that's exactly right
0: okay good so this brings up uh lots of other questions that i want to get into so let's circle back to malaria Uh, so how exactly does one get malaria and then what makes this such a deadly disease
1: So, malaria is caused by the malaria parasite. So, it's a parasite, not a bacterium, and it's not a virus. And you get it when a mosquito that is infected with the parasite bites you while taking a blood meal Mm -hmm. so the mosquito with the saliva will inject a few parasites into your skin and they will travel to the liver and a few of your liver cells will become infected but it's really just a handful and you won't know that you're infected you won't have any symptoms or anything about a week later the parasite will have multiplied immensely. Like every infected liver cell will give rise to tens of thousands of little parasites which will burst out of the liver and get into the bloodstream.
0: Okay, so how, and, do, how do we know this though?
1: So this is actually a really uh, fascinating story. So once the parasite gets into the blood and infects a red blood cell, it's relatively easy to see, right? Um, so people in the 1880s already have taken blood from a person which mm. was sick with malaria, and they saw that their red blood cells looked funny. They had something inside it. So we knew that the parasites was were, were inside red blood cells. But how do we know that they have come from mosquitoes? And right. more importantly, that they go to the liver before mm-hmm. they come into the blood? There was this guy who's called uh, Ronald Ross, who is actually a researcher here in Edinburgh. Okay. And um, he was working in India a lot. And he had this idea that malaria parasites would be transmitted by an insect. And he just went to a monsoon area in India and he spent the whole season dissecting thousands and thousands of any kind of insect he could find because he didn't even know that he had to like focus on mosquitoes so he tried like different sorts of Hmm. flies and everything and eventually he found something which looked like malaria parasites in the salivary glands of this mosquito okay and then he injected it into a chicken and (laughs) Mm -hmm. saw that the chicken got malaria and that's how he proved That um mosquitoes can transmit malaria. And he did actually get the Nobel Prize for this. So Hmm. um in nineteen oh two he got the Nobel Prize. And you can still go and look at it. It's in old college here in Edinburgh. Okay. Something to aspire to, I guess. Yes, yeah.
0: (laughs) So so the Scottish guy was just like, I'm just gonna just dissect a whole bunch of different uh bugs. Just a bunch of bugs. And see what I find. And then if something looks right, I'm just going to put it in a chicken and see what happens.
1: See what happens. Okay. Yeah. It it must have been incredibly difficult because also the shape of the parasite is Mm -hmm. quite different when it's in the salivary gland of the mosquito compared to when it's inside a red blood cell. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) the other really cool story or slightly terrifying story, I suppose, is um, how people found out that the parasites go to the liver. So they knew that there was a lag phase between the mosquito biting you and the parasites appearing in your blood. So where do they go? Mm -hmm. Again, they did a lot of work in chicken, so they had a little bit of an idea that it might be the liver, but there was no proof of this. So again, it was a Scottish colonel called Henry Scott who decided to get one of his friends who uh, was a guy who had traveled the world and was really excited about malaria research for some reason. And he gave him 10,000 mosquito bites. Oh, okay. So he infected him with malaria with 10,000 bites, which is just, like, insane. That is a lot. The paper describes uh, how much discomfort um, the poor volunteer I imagine, was in. would uh, imagine, yeah. And then, that wasn't the end of it, then they gave him um, a general anesthesia and cut his entire pelvis open to expose part of his liver, cut out a bit of his liver and put it under a microscope. Hmm. And that's how they found malaria-infected liver cells.
0: Wow, okay. So I'm glad that we don't have to do that anymore.
1: No, nobody has done that uh, since then. And mm-hmm. it was in 1948. So um, I'm not sure any clinical trial would be approved to do something (laughs) like that in this day and age.
0: (laughs) Okay, so that tells me a bit about how we know... Uh, that malaria is infecting me. So tell me a bit about how, like what makes malaria so deadly.
1: As I said, in the liver, um, you don't really have any symptoms because so few cells are infected. Mm -hmm. The problem really starts once the parasite reaches the bloodstream. You have tens of thousands coming out of the liver and each of them makes their home inside a red blood cell. And then within 48 hours, each of the infected red blood cells makes 10 new parasites. And then it ruptures. And these 10 new parasites find 10 more red blood cells. And 48 hours later, again, the same thing. So you have this really exponential growth of the parasite in the blood. That's obviously really bad news because mm-hmm. you have all of your red blood cells who can't do their job properly because they have a parasite inside them. So you can't get oxygens to your organs. You get anemia because of the cells that are rupturing. You have parasites that become really sticky. So they stick to the little capillaries in your organs, which is obviously particularly a problem when they start sticking in the brain. So it can really like lead to brain damage and Mm -hmm. coma and eventually to death. It's not just all the parasites fault, though. Your immune system is, in this case particularly, making things worse because having millions and millions of parasites circulating around in your bloodstream doesn't get unnoticed by the immune system. I would hope not. Yeah. So especially when um, the red cells have to squeeze uh, through the spleen, you have all these innate immune cells sitting there being like, you look funny. I don't like the look of you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they eat the infected red blood cell, and they throw out all these chemicals, and they are like, guys, there's something super bad happening here. But because there's so many of them, and they make so many chemicals, oh. and the parasite is everywhere, mm-hmm. all over their bloodstream, suddenly your whole body becomes inflamed, and that is not great news, right? right? Yeah, because it triggers really high fever, which can kill you mm-hmm. um, in itself. It can lead to uh, organ damage. So especially your kidneys are really, really sensitive to this. They start to shut down. And on top of that, you have all these problems that the parasite causes, like uh, not transporting oxygens to your organs properly anymore. So you get multi-organ failure and eventually it just leads to death. And that's why malaria is such bad news.
0: So it so it grows really quickly in my body. It and does. then the reaction to from my immune system to just try to get rid of all of that, it causes fever, it causes all, sounds like a lot of really terrible things. So, okay, so that makes it so deadly. Uh, but now I've got a separate question. So why exactly is malaria spread around the world so widely?
1: It is actually determined by where the mosquitoes that transmit it um, can live mm. mosquitoes like it hot and humid so we're safe um, in scotland right but a lot of parts of the world like all of sub-saharan africa southeast asia south america have a hot and humid climate where the mosquitoes can thrive and this is where we get malaria malaria has actually been around for a really long time and it can infect almost any animal you can think of so we have lizard malaria we have squirrel malaria we have bat malaria any sort of animal can get malaria
0: so so each animal has its own kind of malaria is that what you're saying yeah okay so well then how did humans get malaria
1: Oh, so there's actually five different malaria species that can infect humans. Now you're going to say that I was lying to you when I described all the terrible symptoms before. Mm. But three of the five species that infect humans actually don't cause any symptoms. Oh, okay. So humans have lived with them ever since we came down from trees mm-hmm. in the savannas of Africa. We can just live happily with the parasite because if you're a parasite you don't actually want to kill your host that would actually be a really bad thing for you Right, because i need
0: my host to live so if i kill it off well i'm screwed too
1: exactly like you want them to feed you and carry you towards a new mosquito so you can be passed on to the next person Mm So these these three species, they really don't cause any symptoms. The really deadly disease that I described that we know as malaria mm-hmm. is mainly caused by a fourth species, which is called Plasmodium falciparum. This has only started to infect humans relatively recently. And I'm using recently here in evolutionary terms, like I'm talking 10,000 years. Okay, because I was going to ask. Not like yesterday. Okay. Um, (laughs) But it's not very well adapted to living in humans yet. And that's why it is so dangerous. And it has actually come from a gorilla. And falciparum doesn't make gorillas sick, but it makes humans, as I described, Mm -hmm. incredibly sick. And there is a fifth parasite, which has actually like properly recently started to infect humans. And it was first described about 50 years ago. And it has come from macaques and it's called Plasmodium knowlesi.
0: So, okay. So I want to make sure I'm following. So you said there's five kinds of malaria, three out of five. They don't really cause anything, any harm to humans. We live with it for 10,000 years. No big deal. But these other two that came from a gorilla and then from a macabre right those are really horrible well so so how exactly do they jump from like the human species to or from i guess like from gorillas to the human species like how is malaria able to do that
1: yeah so again this is down mainly to the mosquito okay because some mosquitoes have a preference for say biting only humans but most of them Just bite literally any warm-blooded animal they can find. So if you have humans living in close contact to wild animals like gorillas or macaques, it is not unreasonable to assume that you get a mosquito which is carrying a monkey parasite to bite you. So usually that wouldn't be such bad news Mm. because our red cells are quite distinct from a monkeys. So the parasite is not Able to get in them. And that's the end of that. But eventually, you can get a mutation in the parasite so it can get into the human red cells. And that's how it starts because then it can be picked up again by a mosquito, passed on maybe back to a macaque or maybe to another human. Mm. And that's how you start to get the jump from species to species.
0: Okay. So in some of these cases, though, the jump is really bad because it gives us those two out of three forms of malaria that are really terrible. So tell me, like, is there a way to prevent that jump from happening?
1: Well, one way would be to get rid of the mosquitoes okay. that transmit the parasite. This is actually a strategy which has been pursued to try and uh, eradicate malaria across the world quite heavily. And it has worked in some places really well. For instance, there was a lot of malaria in the very south of the United States, uh, right up until after the Second World War. Oh, okay. In the 1950s, there was this giant campaign where the United States basically said, we're going to get rid of all malaria on our land. And they drained all the swamps where the mosquitoes live Mm -hmm. because they like it hot and humid. And they started to spray these broad spectrum insecticides from planes just everywhere they just doused entire landscapes and basically just killed off all the insects including the mosquitoes and it worked like there's virtually no malaria now in the united states okay well that sounds nice people really thought like oh this is going to be great we're just going to do that all over the world and be done with it but it wasn't that easy to implement in other countries so It's obviously a huge infrastructure problem. So for huge parts of Africa, you just don't have the roads or the infrastructure to implement that sort of program. You also don't want to just like drain every single swamp in the world or like lay dry all of the rainforests and rivers where, you know, where the mosquitoes could breed. And also it turned out that those insecticides have really strong side effects, On humans and a lot of animals, but obviously also on all the other insects, Mm -hmm. right? Because they just kill everything.
0: Yeah, because you said it killed off all the insects. Exactly. That seems pretty bad.
1: Yeah. So you would have like whole landscapes where, okay, you wouldn't have uh, any malaria infected mosquitoes anymore, but you also wouldn't have any bees pollinating your field. So people wouldn't have any crops, so they wouldn't have anything to eat. Hmm. or anything to sell at the market so it turned out to be a not a viable campaign and in addition to that the mosquitoes that survived it and you always have a few that do if the campaign is not 100 percent effective mm-hmm. they acquired resistance against the insecticides oh gosh okay so these days we actually don't really have any insecticides which are very effective against mosquitoes anymore because most of them have acquired resistance. So we need now some really new and innovative uh, methods to combat mosquito populations. Uh, one approach which I think is quite cool because it's not just like a sledgehammer, basically, it's much more scientific in Mm -hmm. a way is you can insert a transgene into a mosquito population which means that almost all of your offspring will be male and only female mosquitoes bite only female mosquitoes ever take blood meal so already in the first generation like 95 percent of your mozzies are male they won't bite you they Mm. won't transmit And then in a couple of generations, there are so few females that just the whole mosquito population just crashes. And this was tried like in the lab and on a smaller scale. And I I think it could be potentially really, really effective.
0: Okay. So after World War II, the Americans were like, we'll drain all the swamps. It's kind of an American phrase sometimes to say we're going to drain a swamp. Um, But, you know, we're going to drain all the swamps (laughs) and then we're going to just, you know, uh, kill all the mosquitoes. But we also ended up killing all the bugs and okay but that doesn't work on a global scale because we can't drain all the swamps in the world and we don't want to kill off all the bugs in the world so that's so it's not a really feasible strategy but this newer strategy people are working on is well okay we'll just make most of the mosquitoes male And then they can't reproduce as well, and that might kill off the entire population. But that's a work in progress right now.
1: That's very much a work in progress. Yeah, it's only proof of concept, really, at this stage.
0: Okay. So uh, let's change gears a little bit here. In your recent paper, you ran an immunization trial on healthy volunteers. And these people, they did not develop the symptoms of of malaria. So does this mean that we're really close to getting a vaccine for malaria?
1: Oh, God. No. No. Uh Uh, I I cannot uh, state this uh, strongly enough. I do not think that we have an effective, and that's the key word here, uh, vaccine against malaria. I think maybe you and some of the listeners might have heard that there was a campaign launched this year to roll out the first ever malaria vaccine in um, three African countries Ghana, Malawi, and Kenya. This vaccine exists. It's called RTSS or Mosquirix. It is a vaccine, but it's not an effective vaccine. Mm. It has a very short lived efficiency, so only for about one to three years. You have to give it in really precise intervals to children, which have to be exactly the right age, which is obviously an absolute nightmare for implementation. I, sounds like it, yeah. In you know a remote part of Africa, which mm-hmm. doesn't have any roads, it even if it does, uh, if it is effective, it only works against the symptoms of malaria, so it doesn't actually work against the parasite. The problem is that it will only protect you for such a short time so you don't get symptoms, which is obviously great for that time. Sure, yeah. But then afterwards, you get what is called a rebound effect. So just once the vaccine stops working, you can become much more severely ill. Oh. And you're just like that little bit older. Malaria is actually more deadly the older you get. So if you're a young child, you're much more likely to survive being infected than if you're older. In fact, you have a vaccine that only protects you in four out of 10 cases for about one to three years. After that, it will make you more sick, potentially. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't actually kill the parasite. So the mosquitoes will still be infected. Like the same number of people will still be infected with malaria. How that is good news, I will, I just fail to understand.
0: Right. Because I can see why you're saying this is not <laughs> effective because it doesn't, it's such a low success rate I mean, when the success it gives you is not really much of a success at all so it doesn't sound very effective at all
1: no and i think it's really terrible because i think it will really undermine the confidence of the people in the areas Mm -hmm. um to have their children vaccinated because how would you feel if you bring your child at these four precise intervals to the clinic being told that they will be protected against malaria Mm -hmm. and then yeah i don't know two weeks later they actually have really severe symptoms cuz it works in less right. than half of the cases.
0: Yeah, I didn't think about that angle, but yeah, that that is the case. Yeah, you you're trusting these people who are jabbing your kids that that's going to make them better. Well, it's not doing anything at all. And yeah. well, now they come along with something else. I'm definitely not going to trust them. So I can see why you'd want to make sure that you have something effective before to go to this population beforehand.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And also, like, this vaccine has drawn so much funding from mm-hmm. all of these sources that alternative strategies just weren't pursued because there was no money there to even try them. And I think it has become one of these things which has been too big to fail. Ah
0: okay. like this.
1: so like since the nineteen eighties, people were working on this. Yeah. So much money has been put into it. So now it just kind of had to be implemented. Mm-hmm. And the people who are for it obviously say, you know, yeah, it doesn't always work and it doesn't work for very long, but it can still save that child's life. Mm-hmm. And that might be true, but it might mean that they get really severely sick a year later. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm very much against this. So that was my little rant about mm-hmm. the malaria vaccine. Right. Um, where, where my research um, comes in is that I really strongly believe that we won't be able to develop an effective vaccine if we don't understand how our immune system reacts to the malaria parasite. I see. This is why we have conducted this immunization trial. What happened in this trial was we got some healthy adult volunteers. This was actually done in the Netherlands. And we gave them malaria by mosquito bite three times. And we gave them antimalarial drugs at the same time. So they didn't get sick. Okay. Then we waited for three months. And then we gave them five mosquito bites again. And this time we didn't give them any drug. And because these people had never had malaria before, usually you would expect them to get blood stage parasites, the parasitemia to rise mm-hmm. every 48 hours, and them eventually to feel pretty ropey and get fever. But these people didn't. Okay. Like we could not find a single parasite in their blood. So that's really impressive like these people are protected against malaria they don't have any symptoms and they don't have a parasite in their bloodstream so they couldn't pass it on to the next mosquito and it it's all great news Obviously that's not a vaccine right, right. you can't just like give people 50 mosquito bites and some antimalarial drug like right. that's not you know it's not a vaccine but it will help us to work out what does the immune system do so when you do get infected for real it knows how to react and what to do
0: okay so that sounds promising uh, but tell me a bit about, more about this clinical trial like how easy is it for a scientist like you to get uh, you know access to humans for a clinical trial like this
1: i mean clinical trials are really incredibly uh, important in all of drug and vaccine development It's usually the first time the drug or vaccine ever goes in vivo. So it's not just done in a like cell culture dish or something. And it's the first time it's done in humans rather than mice or other laboratory animals. And it really helps us to assess if something works the way we expect, is effective and is safe. You can do this for a couple of diseases, but... In malaria, we are really particularly fortunate to be able to draw on a lot of old literature where thousands of people have undergone malaria trials. Oh, okay. That's because malaria itself actually used to be a treatment. Um, Okay. (laughs) I know, it sounds a bit crazy. Right up until the late 1930s, when antibiotics were discovered, like penicillin, there was no treatment for syphilis, and especially neurosyphilis when you get like brain damage. And oh, it's right, right, right. really, really bad news. So the treatment at the time, which was called malaria therapy, was <laughs> to give these people who were already suffering from syphilis Malaria. Okay. Because it would give them such incredibly high fever, the high fever would kill off the syphilis bacterium. Right, I see.
0: Okay.
1: I mean, ideally, sometimes it would also just like kill the person.
0: Just kill the person. Okay.
1: So uh, that was actually another Nobel Prize. These are like the two Malaria Nobel Prizes I'm talking okay. about. Now. So, yeah. So the guy who invented this therapy, he got a Nobel Prize for that as well. Um, so
0: I can get a Nobel Prize for curing syphilis by giving people malaria well not anymore i mean not
1: anymore because it has been done but you can come up with another crazy idea there we go (laughs) i can help you with that that (laughs) that sounds good we'll talk later (laughs) off the record Mm -hmm. yeah so um so we have all this like incredibly rich literature of people who got malaria and actually it has been incredibly safe There was a recent article which summarized all of the literature and only like a handful of people died from it and none of them in the modern era.
0: So this literature from that long ago, it's still reliable scientifically. Yeah, yeah.
1: We can still like we can work out what strains they used and what happened if you uh, infected people multiple times, which is something that we're particularly interested Mm -hmm. in because of the whole like the immune system sees something for the first time. Works out what to do so that it can react better the second time round. So, what does your adaptive immune system come up with? Mm. So that's why it's really interesting for us to draw on that literature where they tried to give people malaria several times because they had like episodes and episodes of syphilis.
0: Right. <laughs> so within your own clinical trial, though, you're not. I mean, at most, you're not treating. Nobody with has syphilis. syphilis. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be clear on that. <laughs>
0: okay. So, so, so we've talked a bit about you creating this drug, uh, and also some of the difficulties uh, related to to vaccines. I, I want to get a bit more specific on this, though. Why exactly is it so difficult to create a drug or a vaccine against this parasite?
1: I guess these are two slightly separate issues. Mm-hmm. So, for the drug, it's much more difficult to create a drug against a parasite because. It is basically the same cell as the cell in our bodies. It's a eukaryotic cell, which means it has a nucleus and all of the same components. Things that are effective against the parasite and kill it would also often kill the cells in our body. So that's not really what you want from a drug, right? right? yeah. And you can't really use things like antibiotics, which are effective against bacteria because bacteria are like completely different cells. Their whole makeup is completely different. It has been proven much more difficult to create interventions against parasites. Sometimes accident can help. So the first antimalarial drug was really quinine, which was extracted from the bark of a tree in South America. Hmm. And it tasted incredibly bitter. Mm-hmm. But people realized that it helped them not to succumb to malaria. So they were like, oh, I don't know. We need to do something with this. Naturally. It, it, yeah. It just tastes horrible. Why don't we mix it with gin? Mm hmm. Always a good and- answer. I mean, that's basically my approach to life. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's how gin and tonic was created. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the, the, what makes tonic water um, taste so bitter is quinine. Nowadays, the amount of quinine in tonic that you buy, I don't know, from your local Sainsbury's is very low. Like you would, you would need to drink like liters and liters of oh, it to okay. have any antimalarial effect. But uh, back in the day, it was really uh, potent stuff. It was like properly yellow
0: okay so nowadays if i have malaria getting a bunch of gin and tonic it's not going to help
1: i mean well won't help you that might problem. You, you might still feel better
0: right <laughs> okay but back in the day this would actually there'd be enough stuff in the tonic itself to actually help with malaria yeah and
1: okay. uh, and quinine is still an anti-malarial drug oh, obviously okay. you know now you purify it mm-hmm. and you don't and you usually don't mix, mix it with, it with gin <laughs> sure. but um yeah it's still a valid valid drug and that was and a lot of the drugs uh we have nowadays against malaria are actually based on the structure of quinine are just hmm. like variations on the same theme so okay yeah. so we
0: learned a lot from that from well gin and tonic i guess
1: yeah sure mainly from the tonic <laughs> okay Less from the gin.
0: All right. So that's why it's so difficult to create a drug. But why is it so difficult to create a vaccine against malaria?
1: It's worth mentioning that there is actually no vaccine against any parasite at all. And that's because parasites are much more complex than bacteria or Mm. viruses. Like if you think about it, a measles virus, for instance, has six genes. So, you know, you try all six. You make a vaccine based on them, pops your uncle. Mm-hmm. The malaria parasite has over 5,000 genes. Okay, so there's a big difference between so, six. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just, it's huge. And then it, it can also vary its genes. So it is obviously lives inside a cell of our body. So the immune system doesn't have access to it because it's hiding inside mm. a liver cell or inside our blood cell. So we need something that is on the surface of those cells, which has come from the parasite for our immune system to even recognize like, oh, this cell, that's a bad one. But the parasite has like 60 different genes or gene products then that it could put up on its surface and it varies them oh so every time the immune system has like figured out like okay this is this is what the parasite looks like like find this guy it changes it so it's like a real smoke screen for the immune system
0: so it's super complex on the inside and then on the outside it's constantly changing the way it looks
1: exactly okay yeah.
0: that this i can see why this is really difficult then to attack this okay
1: yeah no so so these are some of the reasons why it is really difficult to develop a vaccine
0: right, so what are some different strategies for developing a vaccine against malaria?
1: When you think about developing um, a vaccine, you basically have three points in the complex life cycle of the parasite that you could target. The first one would be to target the liver stage of the parasite. That'd be really good because only very few cells are infected. And if you can get to them before the parasite bursts out into the bloodstream you wouldn't have any symptoms and there would be no parasites in the blood to be picked up by the next mosquito so you would cure the person without any symptoms and you would avoid the next person getting infected because there would be no infected mosquitoes Mm. in terms of like theoretically this would be the best strategy right you would think but the bad thing is the liver is huge like millions and millions of cells how does your immune system find the like five cells that are infected with the malaria parasite Mm -hmm. how do you teach your immune system to find those five and if you don't eliminate every single one as i said each infected liver cell gives rise to at least ten thousand parasites which can start to infect your red blood cells so you miss one And you're screwed right? because the parasites come out and they replicate in the blood. Mm -hmm. And within six days, you have the same amount of parasites than if you would have never vaccinated that person before.
0: Okay, so this this strategy doesn't sound like a good one.
1: I mean, in theory, it does if it would work like 100 percent. But you can't guarantee that. Mm -hmm. And people have tried it and it just you can't make it reliably work in every single case so then you try and target the blood stage of the parasite okay so that is at the same time easier and harder obviously you have many more cells which are infected so they're easier to recognize for the immune system you are actually targeting the stage that makes people sick so even if you can't get rid of every single parasite you can still reduce the amount of disease that people are experiencing or you can reduce the amount of parasites in their blood to a level which they might be able to live with like i said before people live with those uh, three malaria species that don't make them very sick and they just carry them around and doesn't seem to do them any harm ah, right so you could try and like simulate something like that the disadvantage would obviously be that you would still have parasites in your blood Mm -hmm. they could still be picked up by the next mosquito passed Ah. on to the next person and the next person might not be vaccinated or might be a small child or might be somebody with a compromised immune system Mm -hmm. maybe somebody who is infected with hiv as well Mm -hmm. so you know, you, you run into all sorts of problems in, in that respect because you can't get rid of all the parasites right. and you will never be able to. Also because of what I said previously that the parasite keeps changing mm-hmm. its surface all the time. So that brings me to the third strategy you could do, which is actually uh, what we would call an altruistic vaccine. So the idea is you get a vaccine, You make proteins, which are called antibodies, which get picked up by the mosquito as it bites you Mm -hmm. and picks up the parasites in your blood. But then it stops the mosquito from getting infected. Oh, okay. Inside the mosquito. So it can't pass on the parasite to the next person, which is great. It doesn't help you, though. You're already infected. Okay. So... um, this is something which is hard to implement because mm-hmm. people don't see an immediate benefit for themselves. right. And it's also if not if not everybody is taking part in it, mm-hmm. it it won't work, right? As long as you still have uh-huh. some people who don't get the vaccine, like it just it just won't work. Ideally, you would combine all of the three strategies and make one multi-stage vaccine right okay and it would all be beautiful this has been proven very very difficult
0: i would imagine there's a (laughs) lot of challenges involved with this
1: yeah i mean people have tried all sorts of things they have tried to use the whole parasite being like oh the parasite has over 5,000 genes we can't possibly like pick a single one or a handful of them let's just mash the whole thing up Mm. and see if that works i mean to be fair it worked for like heat killed bacteria You can vaccinate with heat-killed bacteria and your immune system is like, oh no, I, I understand. With malaria parasites, no, you can't. So yeah, we haven't really found a good way of combining them and of knowing which of the many genes that the parasite has we have to target. So yeah, again, I think we need to understand better what our immune system makes of the parasite and how it can learn to live with it for quite a long time
0: so it sounds like you have a lot of work ahead
1: unfortunately yes and i mean we've been, we've been going what did, what did i quote before like 1880 was right. when they when they first discovered that uh, malaria lives inside red blood cells yeah we've not we've, i feel we've not really come very far
0: well we got gin and tonic out of it so that's something
1: i mean yeah do you have some mm. <laughs>
0: All right, this is the popcorn round where guests don't know the questions ahead of time. The questions can be random and the answers more ridiculous, so you have to answer the questions as quickly as possible, faster than one can say pop-pop. Are you ready? I am ready. All right.
1: And terrified.
0: Uh, fair <laughs> enough. All right, so first question, which superpower would you rather have, invisibility or super strength?
1: Uh, invisibility. Mm, why? Because you don't need to be super strong if you can hide from everything mm-hmm. and find out everything without anyone seeing you.
0: Okay, that sounds really clever and really sneaky. Like, hmm. that, that's what people say about me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, question number two. If you could travel back in time, what time period would you visit?
1: oh um i have always been sort of a little bit obsessed with the roman empire Mm. so i studied latin in school like voluntarily okay, (laughs) Um, and uh, we used to dress up in togas and like walk around and pretend to have philosophical discussions Mm -hmm. while translating ancient uh, texts so I would love to travel to that period Mm -hmm. preferably like the end of the Roman Empire where everything just went like really mad and really decadent Mm -hmm and like people were like marrying their uncle and murdering each other sure. like I don't want to be part of that I just want to like observe just sort of it see
0: it. so right, right before the fall when everybody's going right before nuts. the fall mm-hmm. yeah
1: and wear a toga
0: and right toga's key okay <laughs> alright so question number three is double dipping at a party acceptable
1: <laughs> I'm so bad at double dipping
0: ooh um, you're a double dipper
1: okay I, I am a double dipper god I've just admitted it mm-hmm. um um I think it's not so bad. I mean, you know, you gotta train your immune system to deal with all these germs. Okay. Okay. Th- so- th- this is how I make sure to never be invited to your party <laughs> <Exactly>. ever again.
0: So <laughs> a question number four Do you Instagram your food?
1: I do not have Instagram uh-huh. and I have never Instagrammed anything.
0: Okay, well, they, do you take pictures of your food and post it on any social media? No. Okay, we can continue to be friends then, this is good. <laughs> Just don't double dip at my party. So.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry yeah.
0: about that. All right. Question number five. What is the most boring thing ever?
1: I don't know. Um, I, I find most things exciting. Um, what's the most boring thing ever? a small child trying to explain to you what happens in the lego batman movie
0: <laughs> okay
1: because they don't understand that lego batman was actually not really made for children but right. it was made for adults uh-huh. and they just don't understand the story
0: So all the jokes all the subtleties yeah every all lost of the, the all
1: of that is lost so yeah, no. That that must be the most boring thing in the world.
0: I never thought of that, but yeah, their version of it would be painfully dull because all the subtext is just gone. I know. Mm-hmm. Mm, that oh, would be so
1: bad. you know, so you know the movie. Yeah, I
0: have. I've seen the yes. Right.
1: Love a bit of Lego Batman.
0: All right. So final question: Would you want to live forever?
1: Uh, no. I think uh, it takes it takes the fun out of it. Mm. because you know you never you never know what's gonna happen so you try and live uh, every moment in the fullest and try to do the best you can if you would live forever you would be like oh pff, gonna have a lion today and then see see how I get on tomorrow so you yeah, want the excitement
0: of death just uh, there in the background to keep your your life going yeah
1: okay. no, I like that
0: all right <laughs> well thank you very much
1: <laughs> well thank you that was really fun Good. can we have gin now yes. <laughs>
0: And that ends the popcorn round.
1: You done a pop pop. <laughs> Disgusting. You done a pop pop.
0: And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on DNA, immortality, and so much more.